The European Union and vaccine maker AstraZeneca are trading jabs, so to speak. We discussed the spat as EU regulators sign off use of the shots across the 27-member bloc, whilst at the same time it raises barriers against EU-made vaccines leaving the European Union. As border controls tighten in the UK, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson took a jaunt north to Scotland to soothe tensions over the State of the Union. Plus, we'll be surveying the toxic sludge and caustic goop sent our way from our faithful New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan. And we'll also hear a little more about Monocle's fetching sister publication, Confect. All those topics and maybe a little mirth too, here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 29th of January. Yes, it's almost over. And I'm Josh Fennett. Joining me in studio today are Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and our head of radio, Tom Edwards. Um, Andrew, it's been a rather breathless week at Monocle Towers. There's been a churn of concerning and complex news stories, some of which we'll be unpicking today. But tell us, for listeners who look forward to waking up with you on a Saturday morning, what's in your column this week, pray tell? Uh, wow. It, it, it's a bit of a... You know when you get in a car with somebody who can't drive very well? It's, it's a bit like that tomorrow. The, the gear shifts are a bit clunky. But uh, you, you, you start off pootling along, laughing, and you, you may end up with a slight tear. Who knows? I, it, go, it, go, it goes through every emotion in about 800 words. Amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it again. I actually did get a little preview earlier, but I'm sure our listeners are too. Tom, it's been a hurly-burly week of headlines. How does the man in the eye of the storm, the centre of the newsroom, um, unwind for the weekend? I notice you're surrounded by packed bags, usually the sign of an eviction or a a troubled relationship, but I gather you're just uh, keen to get off for the weekend after the show's done. Yeah, hot-tailing at home, ready to pitch in with some... uh Ad hoc parenting. A little late at night, of course, the kids will be asleep. Uh, Tom, this, this is a family show. Uh, the less you talk about fr- hot tales, it's Friday the evening. Better. Uh, the weekend uh, will involve taking a few bracing constitutionals, come rain or shine, and that's all it will entail, because that's the way it is at the moment. But, well, yeah, it's getting out into the forests near where I live. It's pretty pleasant. Maybe you lose the kids there for a few hours, that'll learn them. That's the kind of strategy I adopt. So it is you rustling in the bushes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been quite a week in the world of vaccinations, or as we just call it now, the world. Pharmaceutical firm AstraZeneca revealed that it wouldn't be able to honour its commitments to deliver three quarters of the vaccines that it had promised to the EU. The bloc isn't amused about the wait, but did sign off the vaccine as safe to use uh, today. Today, we've also heard threats from the EU about limiting vaccine exports in what signifies a worryingly protectionist turn. For now, the UK looks set to receive most of its orders on time, which has caused a cascade of accusations, ire and, yes, some gleeful coverage from corners of the pro-Brexit press. Many revelling in the messy EU vaccination programme and some sabre-rattling about the bloc's mooted vaccine blockade. Let's get some details unpacked by Florian Egli from the Swiss foreign policy think tank, Forhaus. He was speaking a little earlier on the briefing. And on the other hand, of the channel for the EU, I think it's more about, you know, generally a test of is there a justification for the existence of the EU? Because the EU has made a point here in negotiating as a block for these vaccines, you know, for all their member states, and then the member states pay and they organize distribution. But if that doesn't work, so if these contracts are not upheld and the EU doesn't have the means to reinforce them, then that puts the whole political project um, kind of at question. Florian Egli there speaking on Monocle 24. Um, Andrew, 
What a mess. The failure of a British-Swedish firm headed by a Frenchman to honour a deal for the EU, showing the ugly side of vaccine nationalism. But I'd argue this kind of actually illustrates how uh, how interdependent and interconnected we all are um, in this battle to vaccinate um, populations. Is some of this frustration uh, from the EU maybe just due to bad planning? A uh, bit of a controversial question, but there have been uh, some suggestions that the UK got in earlier, secured more favourable terms, and that is the reason that the EU is struggling with the number of doses it's going to receive now. Well, oddly, many of the things that, you know, being a, a rubbish old liberal like myself that you normally moan about have, have oddly come good for the UK government. Uh, the vaccines agency here took a, a, a very kind of bullish approach to acquiring vaccines and placed bets all over the place, S- spent heavy, spent fast and made sure they got in there. They were determined to, if any of these vaccines came across the line, and you have to remember they were doing this long before we knew any of these vaccines would work. And their bets have come pretty good. They've done very well. Now, there's a kind of a sense that you have these kind of people who've been in, I don't know, in hedge funds, in venture capital world, running some of this this process. And, and normally you'd be wary of that in government, but actually maybe here it is exactly what you needed and it came good. Whereas you have a, a very kind of institutional kind of EU trying to do right by everybody. And in the end, that slows down the process, which we've seen. So you know the rollout has been slow. The approval has been slow. And all of the, the constituent members have been slightly frustrated by that. You even saw Angela Merkel around Christmas saying, you have to start approving these vaccines or, or we're, we're in trouble. So I think it's like the way that the organisations function. I don't think the UK government has done anything particularly wrong or AstraZeneca. I, I, I think it's, this is just boiling over frustration. And while the EU has been kind of lashing out, out saying it's, you know, it's nationalism and you know, that you have to give us the, the vaccines that are produced in the UK... If the contract was there and if it was agreed, then I don't think there's there's much they can do about it. And it misses the point that actually, from what I understand, the deal between Oxford University and AstraZeneca was 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 engineered by the UK government, who put up that early money and again acted as a, a kind of a, an entrepreneurial champion of that. So that's why they feel they have you know, an ownership over the over, over the vaccines that are produced on UK soil. Look, we all have to help each other. But I, 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 for once, I, I don't think that the UK government has actually done anything wrong here. They've just been very bullish and very aggressive in, in their process. And Tom, we're always uh, keen to get the knee in um, when things go wrong for the UK government. There is a broader picture, obviously, about how we vaccinate everyone and lots of convincing and compelling cases made for the fact that vaccinating everyone will help all of us in the long run and this, this nationalism is, is kind of short-lived. But we found out today that the UK has another 60 million doses on order from US giant, and this doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but Novavax, um, which can be made in Stockton-on-Tees in the UK, Another fairly good bet and a fairly deft way of um, getting around all of this nationalism, borders, things made here and shipped here. Um, Should we be giving uh, Kate Bingham, the outgoing head of the vaccine task force, a bit of a pat on the back? And as Andrew said, did her nous from shorting, backing being in the hedge funds, uh, help her a little bit here? Uh, Well, I think it did. I I think it's sort of accidentally on purpose. I don't think that the government deserves that much credit because I I think I completely agree with what Andrew's saying, but I think they sort of stumbled upon this sort of... um, 
serendipitous entrepreneurialism by, by probably putting some of their cronies in charge, who then did behave in a more speculative uh, way. And they understood that you have to commit, you have to assume risk uh, to find reward. So that did pay off. It is a very commercial, transactional way of looking at things. The problem for the EU is it does rather underscore both a strength and a weakness of the bloc. And it is the 27, you know, formally 28. About half the people in that 27 will still be very happy with the level of uh, vaccination that's rolled out, the speed of the programmes and the costs. Around about 50% will probably be a bit disappointed because it's not as good. If you're a Germany, and, you know, Germany's made separate moves independently to unilaterally get additional uh, vaccine cover for its own population, for which it may well end up facing fines from Brussels and so forth. Inevitably, you know, in a in a block like that, you have collective bargaining. You have to drive harder deals commercially because of concerns about pricing. You're going to hit an average. So half the people will be happy. Half of them, it won't be as good as if they'd gone it alone. And that is the nature of a block. So when you have a huge, pressing, urgent problem that's very immediate, you have to accept that half the people are going to be happy and half of them are going to be a bit disappointed and that's that is part of the also it's one uh, as a a sort of corollary to andrew's point about our slightly more entrepreneurial take it does represent possibly one of the few narratives where not being in the block does mean you have a a extra facility to deliver for your own population summing up the wise wherefores the warp and weft of this intriguing story as it continues but next up we're going to track the movements of the uk prime minister boris johnson Um, He's a man famous for meandering, whether he's straying off message to crack a gag in Parliament or pootling off on a pedal bike for a seven-mile round trip from Downing Street to Stratford. Uh, Boris is rather famous for leaving the well-trodden path behind him. But now, as his Home Secretary tightens up controls at British borders, Boris Johnson has absconded to Alba to try and turn the tides of the surging Scottish independence movement. Oddly, despite the urgency of the message, um, he seemed to swerve tackling the issue head on and has instead decided to play up what's going well about being a united kingdom, uh, pretty much just the vaccine programme at the minute. Um, Let's listen to a clip that aired on The Globalist this morning. Ian Anderson is a veteran political advisor and chairman of international communications agency Cicero Group. Here's what he had to say. His argument, though, is, is it actually top of mind for most voters in Scotland? So I think we're going to hear, regardless of what happens in the um, elections to the Scottish Parliament that are hopefully taking place in May, uh, may get delayed, obviously, because of the pandemic. But if the SNP or supporters more widely of having a second independence referendum um, win a majority in that election, I think you're going to hear an awful lot from not just Boris Johnson, but but actually from um, other UK-wide politicians too, like Keir Starmer, like Gordon Brown. Um, now is not the time to be having uh, a second referendum in the middle of a pandemic. Ian Anderson, chairman of international communications agency Cicero Group there. Um, And uh, for listeners, we do get a little uh, translation of what's said in the clip. And I I do like the rendering of Keir Starmer um, in that transcript as your Stormer. (laughs) I I reckon he'd get elected if that was really his name. A bit more exciting. 
Um, Tom, was this uh, trip by Boris Johnson essential travel to Scotland? Does he need to mend um, the troubles he's seeing north of the border? And do you think this was the best way to do it and the best time to visit? There was obviously a lot of pushback from Nicola Sturgeon, who, whose handling of the crisis has been uh, polling much more favourably than Boris Johnson's. Did he stick out like a sore thumb? Well, yes, he did. And what I find funny is it tends to be the case that when Boris Johnson goes to Scotland, I, th- I think the SNP are happy for him to come because I think the, 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 it's usually reflected in opinion polling that Scots kind of double down on their commitment to, to independence. They, He's in- they, they think, dear God, I didn't know it was so bad. <laughs> well, no, and he goes up there and the, you know, the itinerary is not published because he doesn't want to have any sort of confrontations. He does a few stage managed appearances and he's obviously sort of you know, elbowed in the ribs and reminded to say something sort of conciliatory or, or broadly positive. It's extraordinary. You know, the Tories, I've said this before, you know, it used to be the Conservative and Unionist Party and their handling or mishandling, whatever you want to call it, of Brexit has pushed Northern Ireland further away from, you know, the, the rest of, of the United Kingdom than anything, you know, Irish nationalists ever could have done. And he's doing the same thing and, and, and uh, marginalising and antagonising the Scots. You know, a majority now in Scotland, if polling is to be believed, again support uh, independence. It's all very well for him to pitch up more or less uninvited and just say, now's not the time. That doesn't seem to be uh, the narrative. And I think, you know, uh, something we talked about a lot in this programme is how effective devolved government has been or re- or regional government or regional power whether in the US or in Germany or indeed here in the UK to be more to, to demonstrate more sort of political dexterity and he just looks like he's completely out of time and out of step with what's happening in in Scotland and it's extraordinary to think of a conservative government with a sizable parliamentary majority presiding over what you could argue is an an unprecedented shift towards even greater devolution, maybe even fragmentation of the union. That's that. That would have been unthinkable. To, I don't know. Twenty five, as recently as twenty five years ago. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and, and um, Andrew, as the captain of the monocle ship, I'd like to ask you kind of a question, I suppose, about leadership here. What does it look like when uh, Boris Johnson's Home Secretary is shutting the borders? It's been the most severe clampdown of people travelling around, and then the leader of the UK then kind of transgresses this. I understand that he's probably entitled to uh, move around, but to me it, it doesn't ring true as a great example for what people should be doing. How does it, how does it strike you? Well, you, a, a Prime Minister or you know, the, even the monarch should be entitled to go around the country and see people and, and, and lead... But this just didn't seem like a leadership moment. You know, there was there was there was no meeting with Nicola Sturgeon, who would have rebuffed him anyway. But it did seem like photo op land, and that's that's what made it feel a bit stupid. Now he's also in this terrible situation because if he goes north of the border, he riles so many people. You know, the, 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 it goes up a few notches for people wanting independence. And if he doesn't go, then he's lambasted for like, you know, ignoring the, the constituents north of the border. And the risk is it, it, it can still continues to rise the number of people wanting independence. He's in a no-win situation. You know, he's the epitome of Englishness and of a kind of Englishness that just that has never gone down well in Scotland and certainly not at this time. And, you know, Nick, oh, yeah, I'm not saying that Nick, Nicola Sturgeon is, is you know, Exactly the, the the kind of person you you, you always yeah, she's she's good at her PR but her her 
Oddly, her image doesn't travel well either. I don't think here south of the border, it's not because she's Scottish or because she's so stern. It's just that, you know, she's she's in the same trap in a way as Keir Starmer. The two of them, if, you know, if Boris Johnson says, you know, I don't know, British people will never be allowed to leave these hallowed aisles for a decade... She'll say, it should be 11 years. And Keir Starmer will say, it should be 12 years. And you should have decided this five years ago, before the pandemic. Whatever he says, they, they ratchet it up further. Because they know that for their home audience, they, they, they just want to be seen to be doing a bit more than Boris and being a bit tougher than Boris. So it's, it's a no-win situation. But, you know, the other funny thing about you know, the Tories is, you know, they're, they're very good at all this, this kind of messaging about you know, what you should do. Pretty Patel, she you know she certainly loves a photo op. You know we had these images of you know the health secretary you know, playing in the park with his kids, and then lo and behold, like two days later, he got pinged to say that he needed to self isolate for ten days. It, it's very good at telling other people what to do. You know the prime minister loves to go on a bike ride miles from home. It, it, they're just they're just ever since that Dominic Cummings thing, the whole lot of them. It's it, there's a, a sense of you know. You do as you do as you're told, but we, we'll carry on kind of pootling around the nation as we wish. Do as I say, not as I do. Not a great way to run um, a country. Uh, we're going to head to New York next for our regular check-in with our correspondent in the city, Henry Rees Sheridan, and some toxic sludge he's dredged up from his hometown. Take it away, Henry. The ding of a Gmail notification escapes my headphones and resonates throughout my skull. Google Alerts is alerting me to a development in the universe of black mayonnaise. That's the name given to the toxic sludge at the bottom of the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn. I set up a Google Alert for black mayonnaise back in November. That was when I reported on the launch of an effort by the Environmental Protection Agency to clean up the Gowanus Canal by dredging the caustic goop out of it. Since activating the Google Alert, it has served mainly to keep me abreast of additions to various recipe blogs involving black pepper and mayonnaise, apparently quite a common combination. So you can imagine my excitement when I realised that this alert was about real-deal toxic sludge. One of the barges that had been loaded with dredged black mayonnaise had sunk en route to New Jersey. Rumour had it that the BM had melted clean through the barge's hull. The EPA has not offered an explanation for the accident at the time of writing. It's actually the second Gowanus cleanup vessel to sink. Early on in the operation, a tugboat went under after taking on water in a rainstorm. It's almost as if Mother Nature wants her toxic sludge back. Maybe it's part of her plan to rid herself of us once and for all. The thought makes me feel powerless. I reclaim a sense of agency by setting up a Google alert for the phrase Mother Nature rids herself of us once and for all. For now, we're still here and increasingly confused, some of us more than others. Among the most confused people in the United States at the moment are Republicans. They're struggling to forge an identity that doesn't involve Donald Trump. 
In New York City, the Republican Party is permanently embattled. There are 4.7 million registered voters in the city, and roughly 3.2 million of them are Democrats. And Donald Trump hasn't helped the Republicans sway the NYC moderates who might be amenable to their message. But some Republicans are embracing a bold new strategy ahead of the city's mayoral election this year. The city, a local news website, has reported on a plan by an interest group called New Yorkers United for Change. The plan is called Operation Primary Switch. It accepts the dominance of Democrats in New York and the fact that whoever wins the race for the Democratic primary essentially wins the race to become mayor. Operation Primary Switch is a mission to enrol Republicans, independents and unregistered moderates as Democrats ahead of the primaries. If all goes according to plan, these people will then shift the Democratic vote to the right. Some even have ambitions of sneaking a Republican mayor into office in a kind of Trojan donkey. One of them is John Katsimatidis. He's a billionaire supermarket mogul and Republican who's threatened to switch parties to run for mayor. But he's also an unrepentant buddy of Donald Trump, which could complicate matters. What cannot be disputed, however, is that John Katsimatidis is worth a Google image search. The Republicans aren't the only New Yorkers with a Trumpian image problem. Trump-branded properties in Manhattan have apparently lost half their value since Trump took office. Spare a thought for the people who own apartments marked with the scarlet letters T-R-U-M-P, except instead of scarlet, they're almost certainly gold. At least the Republican Party might get to keep his voters. And many thanks to Henry Reese Sheridan, as always. Great to hear his voice and just wonder what he was thinking when he said the things he said. Um, last up on the show, we have some introductions to make. Uh, Monocle has a fetching new quarterly sister publication called Confect. Let's take a listen to its editor, the talented Sophie Grove, offering a critique of the first issue and what to expect. I was sitting with a friend who was browsing through it and she's, you know, very clever, very sort of like policy um, European. And she just said, this is for me. And she was sort of flicking through the pages, like picking out the beautiful things and saying like, the, I think the kind of sense of treat, it's a real treat, it's a real friend. Um, you know, you can dip into it, it lives up to its name in the sense it's kind of confection. And I think that's been a real joy for me because there is some a, a lot of sort of wonderful long reportage that is very kind of dreamy and takes you away. It's a lot of escapism. And I'm just glad that we've been able to pro- provide that for readers. Confect editor Sophie Grove there. Um, Andrew, so we released um, this rather beautiful quarterly magazine late last year. It's got a focus on Europe, the, the, the finer things, drinking, dining, fashion, but also some quite hard-hitting reportage. And as Sophie said there, a bit of escapism. Um, how do you think that first issue has landed with people who probably probably want to get away from their, uh, from their homes and desks a little bit? I think it's been a bit of a salve, hasn't it? Yeah, something about the, the fact that it kind of like... It has these deep roots in kind of 
the mountains in 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 the land in a way it's, it, it feels you know you know really kind of sprung from from our, our base in switzerland the work we do in austria and germany and things there, there's something very hearty and heartening about it and i think if you're in the anglosphere like we are here when you look at it it it, it feels a little bit foreign but in a very nice way that you you connect with it in a in a really enjoyable way and i think also it's it it, you know, without being ponderous, it just it just treats people as proper grown-ups, and it's not chasing the latest. It, it, it's trying to offer people something that feels sustaining in every sense of the word. So she's done an amazing job, and um, with, with with a lot of her help in the background, I must say, from Josh Fenner. Who knew you you were a dab hand at being a, a women's magazine editor as well but you've given you've given some, some some help here but sophie's and marcella have, have put, pulled together an amazing magazine so it's uh super good I, I must say tom we never get introduced with that kind of prefix the talented do we that's no. that you know he saves that for one or two people it seems last up i think people have a, an appetite for it confect um is on this idea of confectionery of something a little bit sweet uh, to go with the Sour mood around at the moment. Uh, Favourite bit of confectionery, Tom? What, of all day, it would be some sort of heavy duty chocolate bait. Anything really chocolatey, to be honest. You know, a big old fondant. The other day, um, I actually ate a big piece of the, uh, what's the sort of, the very hard, you know, hazelnut, you know, get the little shavings of it on top of a on top of a truffle or something. And I just had a big brick of, like a house brick of it. I just ate that on its own, straight out of the fridge. Like an like an animal, a troubling glimpse into a, a strange home life. It Andrew, was good. Andrew, favorite confection? Well, well, I'm I'm kind of like the opposite of a connoisseur. You know, I'm not kind of that one of these single bean grown in like rare destination. <laughs> I don't care. I, I, I like I like I like I like proper milk chocolate. I like white chocolate. And uh, your, the milky bars are on Andrew. And you're always welcome to give me a finger of fudge yourself. Wow. And uh, so you know what to send in, listeners. And uh, yes, that 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 was said. And. Uh, <laughs> That is out there now. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to the late edition. A big thank you uh, to Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards here with me in studio in London. To all our editors today and our studio managers, Louis Allen and Sam Impey, plus Ed Stocker in Milan, probably cringing at the thought the beautifully planned programme he designed for us uh, has turned into this. But uh, thank you very much for that, Ed. And to everyone for listening, have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>